The preaching of God's Word is in Colossians chapter 3, and particularly verses 1 through 4. So we'll read those four verses and then give some thoughts to this new series that is begun tonight. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. And Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. These four verses for our consideration this evening. Tonight we begin a brief series on the Christian's life in this world. And by no means do we consider to be exhaustive in our uh, consideration of this subject, uh, but rather we hope uh, through a textual series from Colossians 3 and into chapter 4, we'll touch on the fundamentals of the Christian's life, both with reference to general uh, approaches to uh, life in this world, but also the various relationships in the generalities that we may come across. So, for instance, if you survey this chapter, you'll notice verses 1 through 4 provide us something of the foundation, the fountain, for everything else that is to be encountered. This theme of union with Christ will come up again and again throughout Paul's various exhortations. And so you'll notice, as he says, that we're risen with Christ, that we are Uh, uh, in Christ, we're with Christ, and so on. Christ is our life. Then you can go through and you'll see, for instance, that in verse 13, we're to be forbearing and forgiving one another, and that if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And so our approach to others is based on Christ to us. And then you'll notice uh, in these household exhortations, verse 18, Wives are to submit as it is fit in the Lord. Children are to obey as unto the Lord, and uh, so on. All of these things stem from uh, our relationship with Christ. Now, this is thoroughly biblical, not just because it's here in the Bible, but it's everywhere in the Bible. And so we saw it in John 15, where it is that Christ says, I am and ye are the branches. And think of how comprehensive this statement is, that apart from me, severed from me, without me, ye can do nothing. And so what you'll notice is that every action that is well-pleasing in God's sight requires this union with Christ. And though we can uh, mimic and act like we are supposed to act in outward ways, will never from the heart, will never with delight, will never with love fulfill the things that Christ lays upon us unless we are enjoying and uh, cultivating that fellowship with Him. So think even of his statement when he says that we are to come unto Him, all that are weary and heavy laden. And then notice what he says after that. He says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And so this image of being yoked to Christ is part and parcel of the very first steps of discipleship. 
that we are to learn of him, yes. He's our master, we are learning of him, but we're yoked to him. We are following and guided and strengthened and helped by him. And so you'll see this woven throughout, not only the fabric of this chapter, but likewise the whole of all Christian living. That there is no true Christian living without this. And this is important for today's world because, of course, we know the confusion about what is to be the Christian's life based on the world's judgment. But what's more astonishing and problematic is the church is riddled with all manner of false ideas of how the Christian is to live his life in this world. And so there are the motions of an unbelieving view of man and woman, and so feminism has crept into the church. And so egalitarian views of what's right, what's wrong as far as roles is there. But likewise, is there an overemphasis then in an attempt to correct of patriarchy, which then puts the husband and father as if he is the ruler in all things without compassion and concern for and loving service to the rest of the home. This is true in the church. There's likewise the idea of all of the looseness of the world and a reaction that comes then to uh, simple moralism. Well, the world is off here, so we got to get it right here. The world is wrong there, so we have to respond in this way. And yet, though there is an understanding as to why there's a reaction against the wickedness of the world and its licentiousness, the reaction is ill-founded because it's merely looking at the outward actions and outward expressions and not ensuring that the activity of the Christian's life is flowing from a vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And obviously there's the air of antinomianism that comes up and says, listen, since we're in Christ... See, they may start with this notion of union. Therefore, we're free from the law. We don't have to obey its precepts and commands. And we would heartily agree that we are free from the law as a covenant of works. We cannot and we will not uh, uh, ever think to uh, gain our standing with God by our works of the law. But you'll notice that everywhere here, Paul is laying upon us expectations. He's not saying, wives, you know, if you think it's fitting and suitable and within your purview, then go ahead and, of your own liberty, submit to your own husbands. And he doesn't say, you know, husbands, so long as you're pleased to do it, go ahead and love your wives, but if not, you know, you're free to do or not do as you want. He's coming out with commands. He's coming out with exhortations. And the importance of these things is to help counter not only the errors of the world, but those errors as they have crept into the church. And this is no new thing. Paul was dealing with it. Paul was addressing it in the very first generation of the church. It's something that comes up again and again and again. Cultures change a bit here and adapt a bit there, but the essential issues arise and continue to arise, requiring each generation to return to the teachings of the Scriptures. And so as we think about the Christian's life in this world, we start here in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. And in doing so, we start, as mentioned, with the fountain of all life for the Christian's life 
in this world, namely our union with Christ. And so as we look at these four verses, you'll notice that there's this emphasis, verse 1, with Christ. Verse 3, your life is hid with Christ. Verse 4, Christ who is our life. It's actually in the Greek direct, namely that Christ our life. It's quite intimate there. And then finally, verse 4, that it is that we are to appear with Him. There's through and through in these first four verses an emphasis of the Christian's union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we wish to consider firstly our union with Christ, what it is, and secondly, you'll notice the text also emphasizes that benefit and expectation of what's to come. Christ shall appear and we shall appear with Him in glory. So secondly, we'll consider the hope of union with Christ. And finally, the exhortation that's here, our life in union with Christ. So firstly, our union with Christ, the hope of our union with Christ, and thirdly, our life in union with Christ. So firstly, then our union with Christ. This idea of union means to have something in common. To be united is to be at once. We speak of unity, which has to do with oneness. And so we think of marriage as the two shall be one flesh. They don't stop being distinct persons, a husband and a wife, but they now are brought into one relationship, so they are united. And this is true of a number of things that we can unite as material things and other such things that we can consider. But notice here, Paul is not interested in our marriages, though he'll get to that in uh, later uh, verses. He's speaking of our union with Christ. Notice a few things that the Bible asserts of this to help us keep from error. It's not saying that we become Christ. It's not saying that we cease our identity as persons and we somehow become this nebulous thing that loses personality and we just sort of morph into Christ. Because he's addressing the Colossians as individuals. If ye be risen, he calls them not as if they are Christ, but those who are with Christ. And so one point to note is that the union, as the Bible teaches with Christ, is a spiritual union. Christ, in other words, as the Scriptures teach, by His Spirit dwells in us with such intimacy that we are one with Him, and we by His Spirit dwell in Him with such intimacy that we are one with Him. Notice, We read earlier in John chapter 15, notice that John 14, Christ is preparing His disciples for His departure, but also for His sending of the Spirit with greater uh, effect. And so you'll notice John 14 and verse 16, He says, I will pray the Father and He shall give you another comforter or advocate, one who comes alongside, that He may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Notice he says in verse 18, along this line, I will not leave you comfortless or, or as orphans. I will come to you. So by the person of His Spirit, He abides in and with us. And so he says in verse 19, In a little while and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. At what day? At the day of His Spirit's 
coming that the Spirit so permeates believers that by virtue of the wondrous and ineffable, inexplicable uh, uh, Trinity, there's the uh, one essence of God and the three persons who are that one God, yet there's distinction of persons. The Father is not the Son, the Son's not the Spirit, the Spirit's not the Father. And yet such is the unity of the persons in the Godhead that there's such intimacy that we can hardly begin to fathom, such that when the Spirit is sent, Christ is said by His Spirit to be in us. Once it was mocked by none less than a seminary professor, if you can believe this, considering it trivial to speak as many of us have been taught to speak of having Jesus Christ in our hearts. And you wonder at the lack of spirituality that a seminary professor would ridicule such a statement. Now, we don't mean to say that it can't be trivialized, but the correction of that is not ridiculing the wondrous intimacy of Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's by lifting and elevating our understanding of what the beauty and dignity of that great truth is. The Son of God is by His Spirit dwelling in His people. And this, of course, is not to make little something big. It is to express the truth as God has been pleased to express the truth. Notice similarly in Ephesians in chapter 3 at verse 16. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 16. Paul is praying. What's he praying? Well, he's praying that God, verse 16, would grant you according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. Brethren, there is little that we can do this evening beyond to directing your attention to these deep statements of union with Christ. Christ dwelling in our hearts by faith. How? By His Spirit in the inner man. Right. The point is, it's not a material union. It's not like we're fusing one piece of matter to another piece of matter and bringing them together. There is a spiritual union by which the Son of God, by the person of the Spirit, dwells in the life and soul of the believer. And so, brethren, when we start to even get a little sense of this, what we start to realize is that what is provided the believer is inexhaustibly superior to any strength that we have in ourselves. When Paul says things like, You know, I'm not sufficient for these things. Who is sufficient for these things? That's not false piety speaking. It's not some like pretend show like, oh, look how little I am. It's a man who realizes that his own reserves of strength are not sufficient for the calling he's been given either as a Christian or as an apostle serving Christians. But that doesn't make him despair. 
He despairs of himself in order to take hope in the Lord God who dwells in him. And this is what he's praying for God to provide to the church. That there would be an understanding according to the riches of his glory that we would then be strengthened with, notice, might, strength by his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith. So this union is spiritual. The Spirit, none less than the Holy Spirit, Himself divine, dwells in the life of those who are believers. So think for a moment of just perhaps one consequence of this. Our own failures are many. And what often happens is when our failures are apparent, We can become discouraged and disheartened. Perhaps even others slam it in our face. And certainly we know that the adversary who is ever seeking to uh, belittle and uh, cast down is firing off his fiery darts at us. But then here we have this great hope. What we'll find is every stumble and failure in life as a Christian that we encounter is because we have sought to live in our own strength than by the Spirit of God. Every off word, every embitterment of our heart, every grief of sin that has been exercised by us has been exercised by our strength. But when it is we live by the Spirit, as Paul says elsewhere, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Here's the point. There is no holiness. There is no true, radical, by that meaning, deep-rooted principle of holiness without the Spirit dwelling in us. There's no book of self-help tendencies by whatever author out there, Christian or non-Christian, that is able to fabricate the true principle of holiness unless the Spirit of God dwells in our hearts by faith. Because as Christ says, apart from me, ye can do nothing. There's nothing you can do. Well, we could perhaps clarify, there are some things we can do. We can act like the Pharisees, and we can white the sepulcher, and we can beautify the outside. We can pay attention to the appearances and so on. And all of that we can do to impress men. But let's be honest, none of that tricks God. None of that fools God. God sees it all quite clearly. And frankly, if we're honest with ourselves, it doesn't fool us. We know what it's like to put on a face in front of other people. We know what it's like perhaps to walk in a church. And we've had various sins committed throughout the day, and we've not dealt with those sins, we've not confessed those sins, we've not repented of those sins, and yet now we put on the face in front of our brothers and sisters and pretend unto a holy frame. Brethren, this is because we have lived by our own strength instead of what is presented to us, and as we'll see, this blessed union by the Spirit of God in Christ. So this union is a spiritual union. Notice our union with Christ, secondly, is a vital union. That means it is that which gives life. The Spirit of God dwells in us, in us, and by His work, He gives life to us 
nourishes our souls and strengthens us unto the exercise of faith and hope and love. We've seen that already as you saw in Ephesians uh, chapter 3 and we saw it as well in John chapter 15. Abide in me and I in you and ye shall bear much fruit. And so this union uh, 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 the Spirit provides us in Christ is that which gives us that spiritual vitality. So how can we understand this a bit better? Well, you can think of it for a moment of your own bodies. Your bodies need the principle of physical life. And so you can see this, like there are all sorts of medical ethics questions. When is a person dead or not? And we don't mean to tap into that, but everyone would acknowledge that when all of the uh, various displays of bodily life are taken, you're dealing with a dead body. So when there's no pulse, there's no brain activity, nothing is there. There's an inward, material, physical evidence of physical life. And as the systems work and spread strength, nourishment, all the blood carrying oxygen and nutrients throughout the system and every organ is functioning well, there is a principle of life. The body can go and function and move and do and has strength and so on. Well, what's true physically is true spiritually. It's Paul who in Ephesians 2 says that ye were dead in your sins and trespasses. There's such a thing as spiritual death, just as there is physical death. Well, it's then that we are, think of this, Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we have been quickened together with Christ. We've been made alive with Christ. So the very beginning of our spiritual life is by virtue of being united with Christ. And yet, this life that is begun by His grace, the spiritual life begun, is a life that is worked out by that same principle of union with Christ. He abides in us. We abide in Him. His Word abides in us. We bear much fruit. You can see this in a variety of places. Notice as well in Galatians chapter 2 and there at verse 20. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Notice that language again. With Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Notice just again, He doesn't lose His personal identity. He doesn't say, I'm not me anymore. He says, I'm crucified with Christ, yet I live. Yet not I, that is, I don't have the principal life myself, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh that is in this body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. This is what Paul's getting at in our passage in Colossians 3 at verse 3. Ye are dead. Remember Galatians 2.20 that I have been crucified together with Christ and yet I live. Your life is hid with Christ in God. There is the reserve as it were of our life. There is the fountain of our life. It's in Christ. In God. It's a divine life now that is supplying unto our souls that which is needed unto every good work. But notice throughout the Bible, there's this emphasis of faith. So we be strengthened by faith. We are here by faith, living by faith in Christ. 
that I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So faith, which itself is the effect of grace, is ever drawing upon Christ. And just as our physical mouths uh, latch on to things to eat and to drink, so our souls latch on to Christ and we take in by faith, trusting, believing in Him that He will provide what He has promised to provide. It's by that union that we are given life. Brethren, if you erase everything that's been said, what you will end up with is a bankrupt moralism. You can mimic all of the activity. You can do all of the things. And you can say, listen, wives must submit to their husbands. Husbands must love their wives. Children, you better obey your parents. Fathers, you better be not provoking to your children. You better be training them up. Servants, you better obey your masters and so on. All of these things can be said and ordered and stipulated and followed up with confirmation, clarification and oversight and books and conferences and everything else. But if we remove from that the fact that none of that is ever truly possible without this union with Christ, we have nothing but what a Pharisee can perform. Brethren, we do not concern ourselves with Pharisees so much. We ought to concern ourselves with ourselves and ask the question, is my display of a Christian life flowing from this union with Christ? Do I know what it is to be united to Christ and by faith to draw from Him? To live by faith, to come before the throne of grace and to say, I have no strength of myself except what you give me. Unless we understand this, we will try and take the shortcut path to some aspect of obedience and holiness which in the end is disqualifying of us and will display its counterfeit in due time. Union with Christ is the fountain of all Christian living without which, and dare we say quite clearly, without conscious not only acknowledgement but engagement in, there is no Christian living. There can be the mimicking of it. There can be the pretending to it. But except our actions flow from the conscious and uh, the faith exercise drawing from Christ, whatever else we're doing is Christian in name only and not in truth. Union with Christ is the foundation of all Christian living in this world. Secondly then, the hope of our union with Christ. Notice the foundation first we should say as the Scriptures often uh, present to us the idea of hope. The idea of hope in the Bible is not equal to our use of the term wish. Like, uh, you know, I I hope that I'll get a a pay increase is in our day simply the expression of "I, I really desire it. I want it. It's not an expectation. The word hope in the Scripture is this notion of expectation. Well, the word itself you don't see so clearly, but the idea is everywhere here. Notice in verse 4, when Christ shall appear. Not if Christ shall appear. Not perchance, by chance, possibly, probably. But notice it is stated as a certain future act. 
when Christ shall appear. So the foundation of our expectation is that the Christ to whom we are united by grace is the Christ who will come again. And notice, it's linked with what has been stated in verse 1. Christ sitteth on or at the right hand of God. Christ is exalted right now. Our hope rests in Christ still. It rests in Christ's exaltation, that He's exalted to the right hand of the Father, and that He Himself will come again. And this, of course, fills us with expectation. It's not just that we're longing for heaven because it's the world wherein dwells righteousness. We don't minimize that or take that away. That is a great longing for the Christian. But rather, our great longing for heaven is that that's where Christ is. That's what I want. I want Christ. Christ who died for me, as Paul says, who loved me and gave Himself for me. Christ who arose for me as I am risen with Christ. And Christ who is exalted to the right hand and is reigning for me. And Christ who will come again for me. Notice, the hope of our union with Christ is Christ Himself. And all that He is. All that He is for us. His resurrection, verse 1. His session, verse 1. His return, verse 4. All of these things and the fact that we are united to Him gives us this expectation of what is to come. But notice then, the privilege itself is not just that He is risen, that He is seated, that He will come again. But notice the language that Paul uses. If ye, verse 1, then be risen with Christ. Now here's the point. Christ rose, that's historical fact. That's not religion. It's not spirituality. It is historical fact. It's as historically factually true as any other historical act is. From the war for independence to uh, various presidents and their oaths taken, all of these actions are historical facts. If you're married, the date of your wedding is a historical fact. Now, you may be filled with various feelings regarding that, but those feelings regarding that are based upon the historical fact of what took place and its consequences to you today. Notice Christ is risen. That's historical fact. But then he says, ye then are risen with Christ. Now there's fact to that, but there is the testimony here of that union with Christ in His resurrection. You and I aren't yet bodily risen. We haven't risen in the resurrection yet as our bodies will one day. And yet remember, Christ who rose is united with us by His Spirit. And so His glorified and resurrected life is the life which now ministers unto us all that is needed for a life that honors Him. Notice, He is seated at the right hand of God. He possesses all authority, all dignity, all honor. And this is the foundation for our hope. To whom are we united? We're united with the One who conquered sin, death, and hell, who is seated at the right hand of the Father on high. Now, there are people in this life 
who by virtue of their relationships and statuses have privileges beyond what you and I have as far as the world is concerned. Sometimes you read and it boggles the mind. You have to sort of work it out at various contracts that sports uh, stars sign and the millions of dollars they're making in a year. And you break it down and you say, they're making literally, you know, five figures per day. You know, you think of these things and you're wondering, how is that possible? You break it down to an at-bat or a game played and you start to wonder, they're making more than I make in a year. In one at-bat or one day or one whatever else it may be. These privileges give them a resource that is far superior to yours and mine. For what? For earthly privilege and treasures. They can do things that you and I literally can only dream about. We can think about it. We can wonder at it. We can sort of sit down and envision what it would be like to have all the things that they can have and do all the things that they do. That's what they get. And gives them many things in this life that we don't have access to. Notice the foundation of your hope rests in the Lord Jesus Christ exalted. And now for a moment, consider the life well-pleasing to God with all of its hindrances, all of its obstacles, all of its temptations, all of its trials, and how many ways we want to believe that those things are bigger than Christ's power. We want to believe that that somehow makes it impossible for me as a wife to submit to my husband, for me as a husband to love my wife, for me as a child to obey my parents, for me as a father to deal patiently with my children, and so on. We love to bring out all of these things and say, that makes it impossible for me to fulfill what Christ calls me to do. And we would be right if our reserves and strength were only our own. But our reserves and strength, the resources supplied to us, are heavenly by the resurrected, enthroned, and returning, conquering King. Here's what happens. We look, as it were, at the the empty tank of our spiritual selves and we say, "I I don't have the ability to do this. Instead of looking to Him who is the fountain that never lessens, who is risen and ascended and returning and says, I am your life. Here's the cause of your hope for a life well honoring to God in this world. It's in me. This is what revolutionizes prayer. When we start to see it's not just this sort of pietistic expression, make sure I get these words right and cover these points and all of those things. It's that I am drawing near to Christ who has all life, all wisdom, all righteousness, all grace in Himself, who is full of grace and truth and never dwindles in His capacity. I come to Him and I say, You who have all, would you supply what I need in order to fulfill what you've called me to do. I come by your grace, for your grace. I come to you to supply me. Brethren, 
Our hope is not just the exalted Christ, His enthronement and His return, but our privilege is that we shall be glorified with Him as well. Our lives in this life right now have the great honor and the great privilege of union with Christ, communing with Him, and yet the world despises it. And we ourselves feel our weakness and we still struggle with temptation and uh, the world even, the earth, as Paul says in Romans, is groaning for the revelation of the sons of God. There's an expectation. Notice Paul says, verse 4, when Christ who is our life, shall appear. There's His return. Then shall ye also appear with Him in glory. Asaph struggled because he saw the prosperity of the wicked and he saw his own struggles and afflictions. And he said, what's the point? Is it worth it? And he had taken his eyes off of these things, which we have in greater clarity than Asaph had. And we have the great expectation with all of its full spectrum of glory of ourselves being glorified together with Him. And so this hope of being united to Him who is glorified is that we will likewise be glorified with Him. Children, think of it this way for a moment. You know, if you are in a pool in the summertime, or you're swimming in the lake or an ocean or whatever else, and you go underwater, and then you bring your head up out of water, you're able to breathe, right? And so your body is safe. And so as you're breathing oxygen from above water, your shoulders may be under the water, and your torso and your hips and your legs, and everything else is under the water. But so long as your head is breathing the oxygen, you're fine. Now, in some sense... That's what we have in our union with Christ. Our head is in heaven. And so we, His members, live. But there comes a time, at the end of every time in the pool or lake or river or whatever else, where it's time for our whole body to exit the water. And this is what will happen on that last day when Christ returns. The head has been glorified above all that would put to death. And the body will likewise, Christ's members, the church, His people, will likewise partake in His glory when He returns. That what is revealed already will be uh, together revealed on the last day in glory. We shall appear with Him in glory. Brethren, this is a tendency in us, there, there is a tendency in us to neglect this point. We can get the expression right, but we leave off living by the power of this. That we are to be glorified in Christ. We are already seated with Him in heavenly places by virtue of our union with Him. We all are already more than conquerors through Him who loved us by virtue of His union with us by grace. But there's a day coming when you and I shall be openly and clearly displayed as glorified when He returns. This then instills hope and confidence in us. 
you know, so day by day our outward man perishes. It's dwindling. It's failing. We feel this as we age. We can feel our bodies losing steps. Our minds losing its quickness and wit and such things. And we feel, as it were, our slowing down in many ways. And yet, brethren, we lift our eyes to the future truth that when Christ returns, we will be glorified with Him. And this not only gives us a sense of our great hope and privilege, but it instills within us an encouragement to live for that day that is to come. We don't live with complaints because everything's falling out here. You know, this is typical as the world lives, they get older and everything becomes a blanket of complaint. And the glorious days are in the past, right? The glory days are high school and college and when I was young and I was able to travel and this and that and the other thing. But the Christian has a different perspective. There are benefits that can be remembered. I used to be able to do this and that and the other thing. But the Christian has a perspective of what is coming still. I am going to be glorified. Why should I be borne down with all manner of complaint and moaning and bitterness when the best is coming for me because of Christ? So this hope instills this posture of expectation in the life of the Christian, which is to carry into all of these things with reference to how we deal with one another in the church, with reference to how wives deal with their husbands and husbands with their wives and children with their parents and fathers with their children and servants with their masters and masters with their servants. There's to be this strength of soul with the longing expectation of what is yet to come. So the hope of our union with Christ. Well, lastly then, our life in union with Christ. So it's by His union that we're given spiritual life. But now we give our attention to the living out of that life. Notice this privilege that we've talked of comes with a calling, an exhortation. Paul says that we are to seek, verse 1, those things which are above. We are to set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth. And so this truth is to impact and transform us and reorient us toward better things than the world can. So positively, this living out includes the fixing of our mind on things above. Notice the expression in our own translation is set your affection on things above, but likely in the margin you have this notice of mind. And literally in the Greek, it's a simple and strong word, mind the things above. And so sometimes we use that expression in our own discussions of mind this and so on. And the idea is make your mind steadfastly attentive to these things. And that's the, men- that's the point here. That's the same idea of seeking those things which are above. We have the idea of being fixed upon something and the whole motion of our lives is pursuing that. And so what's, getting, uh, what's being presented to us is that the Christian's whole pursuit is to be this life of heavenly godliness now. That our mind is to be meditating upon those things. Everything else is just to be as necessarily demanded for our earthly callings and 
privileges and comforts and so on. It's not that we, as it were, lose touch with this world and go into a trance and we somehow uh, transcend uh, the things of this world. It's that the whole of our calling as wives, as husbands, as uh, mothers and fathers, as children, as servants, as masters, as whatever our circumstances are, all of that is now, as it were, oriented toward this fixation. So think of how Christ says it in some sense. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That is what is driving the life of the Christian. That's what the target is. That's what the goal is. That's the mark set out that the eyes are fixed upon and nothing wavers. Right When people are learning to drive, they're told to keep their eyes ahead and when something's going on, don't, don't lose attention to it because what will happen is you'll necessarily drift off course and soon you'll hear uh, you know, the bumps on the side of the road or worse than that, be off the road. We have to be fixed with purpose on the target to go straight on. Rowers in professional and uh, competitive rowing if they're to go in a straight place in open waters, they fix their eyes upon a mark that is effectively behind them so that as they're rowing, they're going back, they're staying true to a point and going straight on. And the orientation of the Christian is this, my mind is steadfastly adhered to the things which are above. What are those things which are above? Notice Paul gives us help. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. So it's fixed on Christ, but not just on Christ, but Christ as seated at the right hand of God. That gives us the remembrance that He is the King. He's the anointed prophet, priest, and king. He's enthroned on high. It's He, Him as King and His kingdom. All of those things of His heavenly kingdom. So think of this. We're taught to pray by none less than Christ. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. What do we pray? Thy kingdom come. When you pray that, is it more than just an expression? Is it actually an expression of knowledge? I'm longing for the things of your kingdom to come and be set up and established. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Well, that which we pray for is that which we are seeking, right? So we're seeking the things which are above. Christ and His kingdom. We're minding the things above. Our mind is saturated with the holy things of His kingdom. And all of this flowing from the King Himself. And so all that's to follow is in one sense the practical and concrete expression of minding the things above where Christ is. What does His kingdom look like in marriage? Well, He's going to tell us. What does it look like in a household? He's going to tell us. What does it look like with controversies in the church? He's going to tell us. What does it look like to have a mind fixed on Christ when one sins against me? He's going to tell us. And so here is the fountain from which the whole river of Christian living flows. And He says, if you want to understand all those details, your mind must be fixed upon those things that are in Christ and revealed by Christ to us. Well, negatively, he says, in effect, fix not your mind on things below. That is, believers are not to spend their thoughts 
longing after earthly treasures and earthly ease and earthly this and earthly that, apart from that which is needed for serving Him. Give us this day what? Our daily bread. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. What things? What you'll eat, what you'll drink, and wherewithal you'll be clothed. See, Christ is actually instructing us prior to Paul exhorting us about the very same things. What does it look like? Well, Christ tells us throughout His earthly ministry. The Sermon on the Mount, in one sense, is one iteration of explaining to us what those things are which are above and how those, as it were, display themselves in this life. And so, He's calling us away from our continued infatuation with the world's concerns. And how easy this comes to pass. This is one of, if not the greatest problem of recent days, is the church is becoming consumed with concerns of the world. Now, all of us realize the price of bread, the price of eggs, the price of gas is going up. And what happens is, the Christian becomes consumed with it. And the outlet goes forth, you know, my soul is consumed with the price of this, the price of that, this and that and the other thing. And it's a grand distraction from the main thing. This doesn't mean that we don't have to sit down and consider how do we budget and so on and how do we work through this and are there things that we can do to try and lower these prices and call various people to consider those things. The point is, is our mind fixed on those things Or is our mind fixed upon the things above? Because eggs and bread and gas and other things are for the Christian meant to enliven us and help us in our service to Christ. That's our goal. That's our focus. We eat well and healthy food so our bodies, as the Lord blesses, can then serve well and be a blessing to others. Paul is saying, That we're not to be consumed with the things of the world. We're to be consumed with the things of Christ and the world to come. And as we do that, drawing from Christ, directed by Christ, governed by Christ, well then all of these practical things will make sense. What often happens though as we come to a close for this evening is we sort of pay a little attention to verses 1-4 through And then we skip on to the more practically instructive things found later in the chapter. The problem with that is not only does it divorce Scripture from Scripture, it divorces the source of our life from the outworking of our life. And so the point for this evening is to see as we start to enter upon these themes of how is it we're to live in this life as Christians that none of that can actually be brought to pass unless there is union with Christ and faith drawing from Him. And so when we sit down with perhaps domestic struggles or church struggles with other believers and brethren, and we're saying, you know, what are we going to do to fix this? And how are you going to get your ducks in a row? And how am I going to get mine? Where we really need to start with is the first and foremost of am I drawing from Christ what is needed that I may then gain from Him that strength of soul to live for Him. Wives need this. Husbands need this. Pastors need this. Church members need this. Brothers and sisters in the Lord need this. 
if ever we are to move, as it were, according to the guidance of Christ, it must be by the provision of Christ to us. This is why, by the way, devotions are of the utmost importance. It's not because we have to read this many chapters or pray this long or whatever else. It's because our souls need to take in Christ. There needs to be the drawing in of Christ. This is why we ought to pray when we're disputing with one another because we need His governing of our thoughts and words and hearts. This is why the, song, you know, the, the, the believer prays, set a watch over the, my, my mouth and watch over my heart. There's a prayer sent up to God saying, I need you to provide me these things in order to engage in a way that honors you. So brethren, here is your great privilege. Here is your great calling. You have the Lord Jesus Christ as yours. This is a privilege that exceeds all other privileges. Who died for you and loved him, loved you and gave himself for you is the Savior risen for you, seated for you, returning for you. And he calls you to himself and says, all that I call you to, I will provide for you as you draw from me what I hold forth to you. Brethren, do not fall into either the neglect of personal prayer or public prayer for that matter, nor to the neglect of the vital exercise of faith in personal prayer, but rather come to Christ drawing from Him who is our life, all of what He provides. And as you do, let your mind be fixed upon Him, guided by Him, directed by Him, for a life in this world that would be honoring to Him. Would you stand with me then for prayer?